We come now, brethren, to the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Genesis and the third chapter. The book of Genesis and the third chapter this morning. We're going to take a brief break from our series in Hebrews today and next Sunday. We'll be resuming Hebrews chapter 8 in January. But this morning I want us to focus on Genesis chapter 3. And as you're setting your eyes on this page, let me just say that what we are about to read is not a religious allegory. It is not ancient Near Eastern mythology. But what we are about to read is history, true history, redemptive history, just as accurate as the history of the New Testament. I want us to begin reading. In fact, I want us to read in its entirety Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Genesis 3. 1 through 15, and then we'll be focusing in particular on verse 15 this morning. As I read aloud, please read along silently. Beginning in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I have heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. 
And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you this morning for this time of worship, for this time to reflect upon your deeds, upon your redemptive history. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is to be our guide and teacher today, and we would ask for his help, that he would grant us an understanding of this text, and that he would help us to apply it in such a way that our minds are renewed and our lives are changed and our affections are warmed towards the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the focal point and the subject even of this text in Genesis chapter 3 this morning. Bless us, we pray, as we look at this text together. We would ask for your help again. In Jesus' name, amen. Brethren, Genesis chapter 3 is a dark chapter in redemptive history. It contains the tragic record of our first parents' fall. It records for us how they broke God's holy covenant, how they scorned his majesty, how they trampled on his truth, how they challenged his authority. It tells us how they subjected themselves to the sentence of death and to the wrath of their creator God. It explains to us how they placed themselves under the curse of God's holy law and under the terrible dominion of sin. In fact, this chapter explains a great deal to us. It is so foundational to our faith. There is so many answers here. It tells us why all men and women are depraved. It gives us the origin of sin and of death. It tells us the cause of all human misery. It reminds us that we are involved, for Adam's fall affects us all. He took all of humanity with him. And we are in Adam. We have fallen as well. All of us have a vested interest in what this historical narrative has to say. And we read here in Genesis chapter 3 that God responded to this act of cosmic treason on the part of our first parents. And entering into the garden after the fall, God sought out the guilty parties. The fact that God sought them out tells us something about God, doesn't it? Tells us that as a just and a loving creator, God did not leave those who first rebelled against him to themselves, nor did he leave them unaccountable. But rather he confronted them, even calling the man out by name to account for what he had done. And one by one, first with the man, then with the woman, God demands an answer for their treason against him. And not surprisingly, neither the man nor the woman owns up to their crimes. 
but rather pushes the blame elsewhere. And then Jehovah God passes sentence upon the serpent, who we understand to be an actual creature. There's no reason to allegorize here. This is an actual creature, yet a creature possessed by a greater power. And that power being Satan himself. And of course, God knows this. God sees the sinister presence of Satan behind all that the serpent does. And thus, in cursing the physical serpent, God's just condemnation falls upon Satan as well. For just as the serpent would now, according to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14, crawl on his belly and eat dust all the days of his life, so Satan would be reduced to submission and he would know nothing but the taste of frustration and defeat to the very end. God declares Satan's end in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And yet there is so much more here than just that. For there is something for our first parents here in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. For soon God would pronounce the consequences for Adam and Eve's sin. There would be great pain and even sorrow in childbirth. There would be a curse upon the ground making it unfruitful. Even more dreadful than that, Adam and Eve would soon be expelled from the garden, tasting for themselves the dust of a sin-stricken world. But before God pronounces any of those awful consequences, there is even in this word of Satan's ultimate subjection and defeat an announcement of God's grace. An announcement of God's gracious purposes towards the man and towards her future godly offspring, her being the woman. Notice the words of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Again, he's speaking here not to the man, but to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Here we have the earliest disclosure of the redemptive program of God. Or as Martin Luther and others called it, we have here what's called the Proto-Evangelium. The Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel. For in it we're told of God's intention to create for himself a holy seed. We're told of the great conflict that would transpire between the forces of evil and good. But most importantly, we're told of the great champion to come the chief seed of the woman who would ensure the ultimate victory over Satan and who in the process of achieving this victory would have his own heel bruised. And of course, this great champion, this great warrior is the Messiah 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, in this passage, Genesis 3.15 is a small but vitally important message. In fact, referring to this statement or this pronouncement in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 13, or verse 15 rather, Thomas Manton called this a little seed, but in its words are contained all the articles and all the mysteries of the Christian faith. That's saying a lot. All the articles and all the mysteries of the Christian faith are found in this verse, Genesis 3.15. And he goes on to say, and the foundation of our solid consolation. In this one verse, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, we find conflict, we find suffering, we find promise, we find salvation. So let's examine these words of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, knowing that they were a part of God's curse on Satan, but also knowing that it was through Satan's defeat that Adam and Eve were assured of the Messiah's victory. For surely, Adam and Eve, though not directly addressed by these words, found comfort in them, for at the very least, Adam and Eve heard that their deadly foe would be defeated and that through the woman herself, one was coming who would relieve them of their cursed state, who would secure for them the blessings that the first Adam failed to secure. Let us notice here how God announces the conflict and the deliverance to come. Notice verse 15 again. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Here God informs Satan that the victory that Satan had first won over the woman would not stand. That victory was only temporary. For God himself would rescue the woman from the coils of the serpent, so to speak. Imagine that picture in your mind for just a moment. She is in the coils of the serpent, but God is telling her now that he would rescue her. And instead of remaining Satan's ally, the woman would become Satan's enemy. For God would do a work in the woman, transforming the woman from Satan's compliant follower. You'll recall that Adam and Eve fell and when they fell, they became the servants of Satan and sin. She would be transformed from Satan's compliant follower to Satan's contentious foe. For God says here in verse 15 that he would put enmity between them. He would put enmity between the woman and the serpent. He would put hatred between them. We must not understand this to merely mean that there would be a natural animosity between women and snakes or serpents. That's not the, the meaning of the text here. This is not offering us an explanation as to why most women do not want to be around reptiles. That's not what the purpose of this text is. Rather, the Lord is saying that by his own sovereign initiative, notice 
the words here, I will put enmity. It's the Lord doing the work. I will put enmity. He would change the woman's heart, which was immediately inclined towards Satan after the fall, to suddenly have an intense hatred for Satan instead, and that Eve would not only receive a new heart, but that her desires would once again be towards her maker and creator. For we find here the first proclamation of God's intention to enter into a new covenant with the woman, a, a covenant of grace, one in which he would bring her salvation and make this woman who fell willing to believe. So I'm suggesting to you that there's a lot that's being said here by God saying that he would create enmity between the woman and the serpent or the woman and Satan. Because he had her within his coils. She was captive to him. Her heart had been changed. And yet God is saying that he would change her heart, give her a new heart, create hatred between her and Satan. Those whose hearts have been changed by sovereign grace are no longer the allies of Satan. Those who have been reconciled to God through the covenant of grace are those who have like faith as the woman had in the one seed who would bring ultimate victory. For the spiritual seed plural of the woman here are the elect of God. You'll see that, although there is one particular seed who brings salvation. And her seed are those who hate Satan and his devices, those who despise the wicked deeds of Satan's seed. And yet let it be noticed here, brethren, that the spiritual offspring of the woman are not out to destroy the seed or the offspring of Satan. In fact, this is another way that the seed of Satan and the spiritual seed of the woman are different. Notice the text refers to her seed and the seed of the serpent. In fact, this is another way that they're different. The seed or offspring of Satan are actively persecuting or seeking to harm and destroy the seed of the woman. In fact, the proof of this lies in the fact that the saints of God have always been persecuted and martyred throughout history by the followers and the seeds of Satan. But the spiritual offspring of the women are commanded not to engage in such hate and destruction. Rather, the spiritual seed or offspring of the women are commanded to be holy and meek and lamb-like, to bear with the ungodly with patience, to seek their good, to strive to rescue poor captives from the snare of the devil. The seed of the women are never to resort to violence or to aim at the personal destruction of others. For while the seed of the women are actually engaged in a holy war, their methods of warfare are not fleshly and carnal. For the Apostle Paul 
commenting on his own methods in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4 said, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the calling down of strongholds. So the spiritual offspring of the women leave the task of destroying Satan and his seed to the one who has the power and the authority to do so. And that is the chief seed of the woman who will gloriously conquer even though bruised. And it's towards this one seed that we now turn our attention here in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Notice this. For having already announced to Satan that Satan's grasp upon the woman would be broken and severed by the power of sovereign grace, God now announces that the ultimate and decisive battle would be fought by the leaders of both sides and that wounds would be exchanged but that God's Messiah would prevail against Satan himself. Note here in our text how this decisive battle and its outcome are described. Notice again the text. He, notice the insertion of he now, he, the leader, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Observe here that the victor of the battle is mentioned first. For the first place, the pride of place always goes to the victor. And the victor here is also the seed of the woman. For he would be born of a woman, a virgin, a true child of Eve. And yet unlike every other human seed, this victor would be sinless. He would not be tainted with the sin nature of his birth mother. He would not need to be redeemed as she was, for he would be a perfect man, the very son of God manifested in actual frail human flesh. For the apostle John makes it clear here in John chapter, makes it clear in John chapter 1 and verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. For it was necessary that the Son of God become incarnate. For only as a man could he accomplish his work as the victorious seed of Genesis 3.15 and defeat Satan. For consider how the writer to the Hebrews declares this truth back in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. He writes, for inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, referring to Jesus Christ, who is the victorious seed, likewise shared in the same, the same what? The same humanity, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So the victorious seed of Genesis 3.15 would be a man of flesh and blood, just as the first Adam was. And just as the first Adam of the victorious seed, or we might call him the second Adam, would also be born under the law. This is clear 
in Genesis, or excuse me, in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, which reads as follows. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So he would come as a man. He would come under the law. And yet, unlike the first Adam who failed to keep the law and who brought himself and his descendants under the curse of the law, this second Adam would keep the law perfectly. And he would not only display his own righteousness in doing so, but he would also merit righteousness on behalf of his spiritual seed. Those who would later receive that same righteousness imputed to them. And so it is this seed, the seed of the woman who came after the manner of the first Adam, but who obeyed As you can see this morning, I'm having some difficulty. Perfectly, where the first Adam did not. Who would engage Satan on behalf of the honor of God the Father. And on behalf of those who would follow him. Notice here how this victorious seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, would decisively win over Satan. Notice verse 15. This victorious seed of the woman would, according to this passage, bruise your head or bruise Satan's head. And surely by using this figurative language of bruising or crushing the head of the serpent, God was announcing that the seed of the woman would deliver to Satan a death blow, a mortal wound from which Satan would never recover. For to strike a serpent anywhere but on the head will simply cause him to recoil and strike again. But crush a serpent in the head under your foot not only makes the serpent unable to strike, but it takes away its very strength and life. And under one's foot, the serpent will eventually perish. Certainly, this is what the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, did to Satan during our Lord's earthly ministry. He, he placed his holy foot on Satan's rebellious head, the head that signifies the seed of power and authority, and Jesus disabled the serpent. For Jesus, as the victorious seed, systematically destroyed Satan's powers and works. And if you think about our Lord's ministry in the Gospels, you'll see how Jesus Christ simply dismantled all that Satan was attempting to do as his foot was crushing down on his head. And how so? Because prior to Christ's coming, Satan had certain powers over fallen man. Think about it. Man was in the grip of Satan. Satan had the power of death, although Satan was not the Lord over death, but the minister of it. And with this power, Satan kept men in bondage to fear of death. However, Jesus decisively stripped Satan of this power. We're told in Hebrews chapter 2 that Jesus 
through his death on the cross, not only destroyed Satan, who had the power of death, but he delivered them who, through the fear of death, were for their entire lifetime subject to bondage. Again, that's found in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 15. Prior to the arrival of the glorious, victorious seed of the woman, Jesus Christ defeated Satan in that Satan had exercised a tyrannical, abusive authority, an authority that had never been given to him by God, but one which man gave to him. And yet when Jesus came, he revealed Satan as a thief and a usurper, and Jesus as the true king and the true head of both angels and men pulled Satan down, delivered poor souls out of Satan's power, and revealed Satan as a liar. And therefore, prior to Christ's coming, Satan held countless men captive to his will and to his pleasure. They were the spoils of his conquest. And yet, with his defeat in particular, Jesus plundered Satan's kingdom. Jesus made a show out of Satan's fall. For we read in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15, which we read this morning, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them all. For surely, to use the words again of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, Jesus placed his holy heel on Satan's head and smashed it, crushed it. Even today, Satan's head remains under the downward thrust and force of the Messiah's foot. His head is bruised. We simply await Satan's final defeat at the end. What about the seed of the woman, the Messiah? What wound would he receive during this brutal battle? Well, God pronounced to Satan here in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 that the Messiah would be bruised and that Satan would bruise his heel. For although Satan would be the weaker party in the conflict, God would allow Satan to bruise the Messiah so that the redemptive purpose of God would be fulfilled through the Messiah's sufferings. And how was Satan permitted to bruise him? Well, certainly there's a sense in which Satan was permitted to bruise the Messiah throughout the course of the Messiah's earthly existence, from his temptation in the wilderness up until the time that Satan orchestrated his cruel betrayal of Jesus by Judas. In fact, we read in Luke chapter 22 and verse 3 that Satan entered into Judas Iscariot to ensure that the betrayal of Jesus went off without a hitch. For Satan was seeking to win over Jesus, his, his opponent. But clearly the deepest wounds that our Lord's blessed heel experienced were those inflicted against him by the servants of Satan who tortured and crucified Jesus on the cross. There, Jesus suffered unspeakable abuse with Satan, no doubt, ordering each and every blow. 
And yet we should recall that Satan was only permitted to bruise his heel. Notice that. He was only permitted to bruise his heel for his head, his office, his power as mediator was never in jeopardy. And even the victorious wound to his heel was only temporary. It was not permanent for in a few short days later, Jesus would rise from the grave again. No, the cross may have appeared like a victory for Satan and for his seed, but it was actually a victory for the one seed of the woman, the Messiah, and his seed. For while the Romans were bruising Jesus and parting his garments, he was then spoiling principalities and powers. When Satan and his seed thought that they were triumphing over Jesus, he was triumphing over them. For when the cross took place, it was actually a victory call for Christ. The cross was the necessary means of conquest. It was necessary that his heel be bruised. For through no other means could the serpent's head be decisively crushed. Through no other means could the Messiah lead the holy offspring of the woman to their ultimate victory over Satan and his seed, a victory more decisive than any other. Oh, my friend, the account of the battle I've just shared with you is not a fiction, nor are the participants in this conflict imaginary. Rather, the whole account is the fulfillment of God's words, God's promise spoken in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And having explained this verse, I, I wonder now as we turn to a, a few closing words of application, where we would place ourselves in this great conflict. And how each of us stand in direct relation to the chief seed the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we now members of Satan's seed or of the woman's seed? We might ask the question, how do we know? How do we know if we are members of Satan's seed or of the woman's seed? Well, with whom does your allegiance lie? If your heart is still in bondage to Satan, and you desire to do the works of Satan, then Satan is your father. If you care not for the things of God, if you care not for the people of God, his chosen seed. In fact, if you would rather resist and persecute God's people than be a part of them. If you'd rather resist and rebel against the champion of God's people, then you are in fact of the seed of the serpent. You say, I fear that I might be such an individual. I fear for my own soul. Then while you have your spiritual senses, then turn to the Lord who you previously despised. Turn to him. Cast down your arms against him. Kiss the son in faith, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Trust in his cross work alone. See in his conquest your salvation. And then a word too about the seed, plural seed of the woman, of the woman. Would you number yourselves among her seed? 
Oh, presume not to do so if you're still a stranger to sovereign grace. If your heart has not been changed, if your desires are for God, for his people, then rejoice. Then you are chosen of God. And yet remember you have an adversary and his seed who wish to destroy you, who wish to bruise and defeat you if given an opportunity to do so. Therefore, be on guard. Be on guard. In fact, Thomas Manton, who I quoted at the beginning of this sermon, wrote, Though Satan's head be crushed, yet there is still room for your own duty, that we may use the means for our safety as good soldiers and live as in the continual fight. For wisely does Peter exhort us in 1 Peter chapter 5, Be sober and alert, for your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom steadfast resist in the faith. How are we to resist in the faith? Manton urges three uses of means here. Number one, he tells us to use a, a holy moderation when it comes to the comforts and the delights of this life. The delights of this life can be bait that Satan uses to lure us, to distract us, to draw us in. Use holy moderation. Secondly, be watchful. The first duty of a Christian soldier is to watch. Our consciences must stand guard at the door, carefully examining what comes in and what goes out. Then thirdly, we must steadfastly resist the devil. This steadfast resistance involves adhering to the principles of the gospel as our happiness and persevering in our duties, not letting go, not resisting to fight the good fight. For if we are not Christ's soldiers, we are Christ's enemies. If we are not Christ's soldiers, we are Christ's enemy. But above all, remember that your ultimate victory rests with the one prophesied of in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And that final day of Satan's defeat is not far away. In fact, I want to close by asking you to turn to Romans chapter 16, if you would. Romans chapter 16, verses 19 through 20. And notice what the Apostle Paul says here. Speaking to the Roman Christians, he says, For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I am glad on your behalf. But I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Notice that amazing statement here. The God of peace will crush Satan. We, we knew that, right? We saw that earlier in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. But notice under whose feet he'll be crushed. Under your feet as well. Because not only are you able to crush him as the text says. But because you share in Christ's victory. You share in the victory of Christ as well. 
for on the day of our Lord's glorious appearing, he will finally consign Satan to his awful place of punishment, and we shall be rid of him, and we shall be victorious over him. O believer, let the words of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 ring in your ears this morning. The champion seed of the woman has prevailed. Has prevailed. And his people, his seed, are victorious in him. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your words today. And we would pray that what has been said in some small way can be used to be a blessing to your people. Father, help us as a church to grow in grace and our understanding of your will for our lives. And we would ask, dear Lord, that you would bless us from what we've heard and that we would draw closer to you as individuals and as a church. For we ask these things in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.